Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. So here we go. Revelation chapter 3. We're in the last church, the church of Laodicea, and we're just going to jump in. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. So let's start with Jesus's introduction. Again, if you're just kind of jumping in with us, these are letters from Jesus. That's why your Bibles show these letters written in red font, because these are Christ in a vision revealing to John uh, messages to these churches. And as he goes through, he introduces himself in different ways, and they're for different reasons, for specific, intentional reasons. When Jesus says, I am the amen, I love this because this word amen um, transliterated directly, okay, from the Hebrew to the Greek to the Latin uh, and on out into all the languages of the world, it is um, very closely, almost, almost identically transliterated as some form of amen. There may be like a amen in there somewhere, or if you're from the South, amen. Um, but this word amen, usually, you know, uh, we've kind of relegated it to just how we close our prayers. But originally, this word would have been used to open a statement as well as to close it. And it would, it would be something along the lines of saying, like, truly, I say to you. It'd be like, amen. And so, and then it would follow that statement as well. And it would be sort of a corporate response to somebody saying, hey, God's good. And everybody saying, Amen. And so when Jesus says, I am the amen, what he's saying is this word that by definition, it means let everything that was said be fulfilled. Let everything that's about to be declared be fulfilled. And then at the end, let everything that was just declared be fulfilled. And I love Christ introducing himself as the amen because he is the fulfillment. He is the way in which it all comes to pass, all right? And I think sometimes it's hard for us. We, we see Jesus as this man, but Jesus in heaven's perspective was so much more than the baby born in the manger and the one who died on the cross. Jesus changed everything. We catch glimpses of it when Jesus says things like, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to, amen. I came to amen the law. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That's like saying the law and then saying amen after it. That's what he means when he says, I came to fulfill it. I'm the amen to the law. I'm the bookend on the end of this thing that makes it all stand up, that holds up its purpose and its point. The amen. It's a word that is probably the best known word among all human languages. And yet what it does is it creates order for us. I know, Zach, really, again, with the order, every message we circle back around to this, it seems like. I hope you're getting the point. Um, order. He says it in other letters to other churches. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and omega. I'm the first and the last. The Amen. The amen, it's order. Zach, how is this applied? How do I make this real in my life? Well, let me ask you this. Is Jesus the beginning and the end of everything that you do, of every decision that you make? Does he have say from the beginning and then does he have the confirmation, the closing, the declaration, and the fulfillment at the end? And this is, this is the hard place that we've got to come back to. And saints, the reason why this is so strong on my heart and that I might just preach the whole message without getting past the amen is because I've watched our church, our families get their priorities and their order a little bit skewed. And, and I'm going to tell you something and it's going to be, it might be a little bit hard to believe, but when Jesus doesn't come first, when we don't start with the amen, when he's not the alpha, I'll say it to you this way. Whatever comes first today, will make sure that God doesn't come first tomorrow. Whatever else you choose, 
no matter how harmless, no matter how innocent, no matter how seemingly whatever it is, well, this is a good thing. You know, this is good. This is good for my kids. This is good for my family. If it doesn't start with Jesus, if it doesn't start with Jesus, we cannot expect that at the end of the day to have a good result. Well, I want to end it with Jesus. Well, it's not going to work that way. Because when you start off this path and you're three clicks this way, by the end of the day of walking, you're way the heck over there. He has to be the beginning and the end. He has to be the amen. I've, I've, we've wept over families that have taken a season and shifted their priorities just a little bit. They're not renouncing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They're not, you know, calling off the body of Christ in their lives. No. It's just that he didn't come first. And we've watched as families fall and it's devastating. And so hear this from a pastor that loves you, that wants the best for you at the end. And so we're calling for the best of the beginning. He says, I'm the faithful and true witness. Okay, so again, these aren't hard words. Faithful. If you're writing things down and you want to write down something about faithful, just get this. Don't wait for all else to fail before accepting the one who never does. I am the faithful. Everything else will fail you. I am the faithful. Speaking of order and priority, we're working with some relationships, some marriages, um, some divorces that God is actually restoring to marriage because that's what he's doing right now. Somebody say amen. And uh, yeah, and uh, he's invested in this stuff, guys. The spirit of God is invested in our marriages, in our covenants. And um, I love when people get over the failure of their spouse because what you see is an awakening to the unfailingness of God. Many people, the faithfulness of God is eclipsed by the faithlessness of people in their lives. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's, maybe it's just one relationship that you had years ago and you never quite overcame that. But wherever we've been abandoned and rejected, it's been difficult for people to see the Lord. But whenever we can get over the flesh that wants to keep that right in the center of our attention, when we can get over that flesh, what we find is a God who is faithful forever. Don't wait for all else to fail before accepting the one who never does. And he says true. Now this word true is loaded, right? Because, you know, we talk about relative truth. We've addressed it in some of these previous letters. But when he says true, this word, it, it, it actually packs a more complex meaning because it contrasts um, realities with their counterfeits. True, when, when the word true is spoken, it's, it's said with the indication that there are other things that look similar in appearance and in name, but do not carry the fullness of the nature of what is true. And so when we, when we dig into truth, we've got to go deeper than surface level. We've got to go deeper than our, the satisfaction of our flesh. We've got to be able to um, really do some soul searching and find out. Sometimes it's not soul searching. Sometimes it's statistic searching. Sometimes statistics betray how counterfeit a lot of the world's philosophies really are. And so, yeah, if the Lord leads you there, don't be afraid to do that. I am faithful and true, not only name and resemblance, but the real nature corresponding to that name. There's a reason why we always come back to Jesus. There's a reason why we sing songs about the name of Jesus. There is a reason why scripture tells us that there is no other name because that name is true. So he jumps right into it. Kid gloves come off. And he says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Wow. Well, that's tough love. A lot of people read this. I've heard messages preached on this in the past. And what, uh, what, what 
kind of a surface level interpretation of this is, is that he would rather us be like uber, uber passionate, crazy, radical Christians or like full blown atheists, like completely denying Jesus. And while there may be some truth to that, because like the people in the gray area end up doing more disservice to like the true name of Jesus than the ones who completely deny him, that's not actually what this means, okay? So cold or hot, um, Laodicea was in um, a little cluster of cities. There were three cities uh, and they were all within maybe like five to 10 miles of each other give or take, and there was a city to the north of us. They were all in this valley that was on a trade route from the east to the west of the known world at this time. And to the north, like 9.3 miles, was a, a, a city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis established itself where it did because there were really intense mineral hot springs in that area. And a town was built up around these hot springs because of their medicinal value. There were healing properties in the minerals. Has anybody gone and sat in hot springs? And it's, like, it's actually pretty cool, right? I did this, I was on road trip, which I probably shouldn't say because road trip's supposed to be this uber intensive disciple making thing. And we went and sat in some hot springs in Colorado for a while. It was actually incredible. And, uh, and there is something about it. It's like, a little, it's like a little better than a hot tub, but probably not quite as good as the La Salette reflection pond. <laughs> I think there is a hot spring under there somewhere, so we're gonna find out when we get out there. But uh, Hierapolis established itself around these hot springs because they were medically significant. And people began to go there. It began to be sort of a medical destination for people with ailments and issues and infirmities because they would go and they would get into these spas, these hot springs, and uh, receive some sort of healing and treatment from it. The other town was to the south and to the east, and it was Colossae, around six miles or so. Uh, and Colossae had a water supply that it was built around, but Colossae's water came from deep underground rivers and it was ice, ice cold. And so Colossae's water was known for its, how refreshing it was. It was like the Fiji of its time. People bottled it and sold, no, that's not true. And, uh, and so you have these two towns to the north and to the south, Hierapolis and Colossae, and we see Colossae is, received some letters. Uh, in fact, the letters to Colossae, Paul says, make sure that these letters are read to Laodicea and make sure that the Laodicean letters are read back and forth. So these towns were close enough to each other that they, uh, that they could benefit from the similar ministry, but they were far enough from each other that they, wa the water supply didn't quite work. And let me tell you why. Because Laodicea, built these conduits, these aqueducts that the Roman Empire was famous for. They built these aqueducts and the ones from Colossae still exist. You can still go and see um, the, the, the stone castings, the holders, the pipes. It actually is pretty incredible engineering. And, uh, and history tells us, although we don't have archeological record of it, um, but history tells us that it's likely that they also drew water from Hierapolis as well. So in an attempt to achieve both of these things, the hot springs of Hierapolis and the cool, refreshing water of Colossae, Laodicea built these aqueducts, these water pipe systems to bring the water to this city. Because Laodicea, unlike these other two cities positioning themselves around a source, Laodicea positioned itself for convenience. It was right smack dab on the highway from east to west. No water supply, but it was incredibly lucrative. This aqueduct system was crazy because um, they've actually found inscriptions on the stones that would hold the pipes running across like miles and miles of of land, there were inscriptions, and it would say, um, anyone who 
tampers or uh, bothers this water system um, is subject to uh, so many thousand denarii uh, fine. And it was like the signs you see on the fences outside water towers and stuff like, you can't tamper with this or you're gonna be put in jail. And actually, the US dollar amount of what that fine was, was $42,500 for tampering with the aqueduct system that ran from these cities into Laodicea. And as I read that and saw that on the Mar, I actually flew out there this week and was visiting the area. And uh, I was gonna put some pictures up, but I didn't. Um, but I, I want to, um, I want to take note of this. You see, the water supplies in Hierapolis and Colossae, they didn't require those inscriptions. They didn't require laws and fines to keep from tampering with them. You know why? Because they sat right on top of the source. And I felt like as I read in the marble and did a little crayon rubbing right over it myself, I'm just kidding, I didn't, but I, I did see pictures on, online, so for whatever that's worth. When I read it, I felt like I heard the Lord say, when you position yourself too far from the source, your sustenance is susceptible to compromise. And I feel like for believers today, it is very common for us to position ourselves for convenience. We position ourselves, we build for ourselves our own cities our own empires, and we build them strategically located so that we can be in the middle of whatever we think is gonna be most lucrative for us. And this isn't just a money thing, it's a, it's a lot of different things, but the money thing is real. In fact, Laodicea was so wealthy that when there was a huge earthquake and, uh, and the city was destroyed, um, the Roman government issued out funds to rebuild these cities that were destroyed. And Laodicea was, I think, the only one that said, no, we don't need your money, Rome. We have enough wealth within our own city to rebuild. There was a lot of pride there. And we see that Jesus goes on to say, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This whole thing is so loaded and I love it. But I wanna just make a couple points here. Unlike the church at Smyrna that says they're poor and Jesus says, but you're actually rich. I know that you, you're, you think you're poor, but you're really rich. He says to the church at Laodicea, I know you think you're rich, but you're really poor. If you're writing things down, just get this and make it real for yourself however you need to. When you have nothing, the Lord can do everything for you. When you have everything, he can't do anything for you. And the pride of our lives that, that happens when we are positioned for convenience, you see, we, we end up on the receiving end of a lot of what looks like blessing and we feel blessed because we know God is good and we're doing the math in our heads. I know my God is good and look at what everything that's coming to me but again, being so far from the source means that we're not actually benefiting from the real refreshing of the cold or the real medicinal healing properties of the hot. And we end up being this sort of, because by the time the water travels over nine miles from one direction and over six from another direction, and it comes through the, the hot sun of that area in that time, guess what? By the time it gets to you, it's not really worth anything. When you have nothing, he can do everything for you. That's why no matter where you're at economically, Jesus says, blessed is the poor in spirit, the one who acknowledges how low we are 
the one who acknowledges how humble we are in the presence of our God. He goes from me, he, said, he goes from there, he says something um, kind of shocking as far as I'm concerned. He says, I advise you to buy from me. And he says three things, gold, refining the fire, garments of white, and eye salve. And I wanna talk about these for a few minutes because um, again, the gold thing, he's speaking directly to the Laodicean economy. Um, Laodicean was like a banking hub because of its centrality in um, commerce and trade. So as people from the West and the East would, would pass each other there, uh, this became a place of exchange, this became a place of uh, mercantile uh, wealth, and we saw the city grow extravagant because of this. But he says, I advise you to buy from me. Now, very, very rarely, if ever, do we ever see God saying, buy from me. Okay? Because if he ever did, we would all be like, uh, yeah, that's out of my price range. Everything's like, it's a free gift, right? The gift of salvation. Everything we talk about from the Lord, uh, it comes off like, okay, he's paid the price, right? The debt we could not pay. And then we see Jesus in this letter saying, you've got to buy from me. I advise you to buy from me. And here's the point. To a transactional people, the Lord requires a transaction. To people whose lives are built around transaction. Listen, if you go into some of the poorest places in the world where, again, they have nothing so the Lord can do everything, there isn't really a transaction because these people have nothing to give and they have nothing to lose. But in a world where we have everything to lose, in a part of the world where, where everything is transactional, like stuff that's not supposed to be transactional, we have put a price on it. We have adulterated and perverted and corrupted everything down to dollar signs. To a transactional people, let me tell you something. The Lord will require a transaction. Now you've got something that you think is that good. You've got something that you think will save you. Well, now it's going to require sacrifice like nobody else has ever had to know. And I believe that in our nation here, that there was a time when we understood that what we had required from us something great to whom much is given, much is required. And there was a time when as a nation, we were aware of how blessed we really were. And so in a response to that, we were quick to make sure that we covered the naked hides of other nations when they needed it. And I see us and I see how selfish we've turned, how self-consumed we are. And it's alarming to me. And I, I almost hear these words echoing 2000 years later to say, I advise you to buy from me. Not the gold that you're used to dealing with. <laughs> they say that money is some of the dirtiest stuff in the world. I've heard that, that like when they do like microbial germs and bacteria tests and stuff like that, that the stuff that lives on money is, you know, I just got a new ATM card in the mail and it's touchless. You know, it's like the... You know, you just kind of like show it to them from the parking lot. <laughs> and they're like, got you, it's good. And uh, the bank cards are, are late on that. It was the vaccine card that started all that. I'm good. Oh, that guy's good, go ahead. And uh, I, I just, I, I feel like people are starting to catch on to how dirty money is. But a while back, we would go through the tolls. Remember tolls when you had to go through and actually pay money? And um, we would get money cash back and, and Ashley like wouldn't touch it. And she's like, she, we had a name for it, dirty dollars, dirty dollars. Now, dirty dollars paid me through Bible school. Okay, so I'm not afraid of dirty dollars. So, so I'm like, hey, I'm fine with dirty dollars. I will shove those dirty dollars in my pocket. But in truth, if we just knew where our money had been, we probably wouldn't be as in love with it as we are. I advise you to buy from me, not that filthy money, 
that you've been passing around that's come from all sorts of unsanctified, desecrated, nasty places. Although that money is still welcome in the giving kiosks in the back. <laughs> what the Lord requires of us, what the Lord wants to do in us is exchange that for gold that has been what? Refined in the fire. Remember that? Pewter by gold, refined in the fire. That's a Brownsville song. I know, it's, it comes from this letter. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. I believe that it is not just possible, but I think that it is a mandate from heaven that we sanctify our finances. That we become increasingly aware of what the Lord has given us in terms of wealth, in terms of time, in terms of resources, in terms of giftings, everything that we have that we've put a dollar sign on, everything that we've had that we've attached a value to, that the Lord says, it's gotta be sanctified. It's gotta be refined in the fire. The next thing he says is white garments. Laodicea, one of the uh, many things that it was famous for and one of the, the things that brought in such vast wealth was um, they had uh, black sheep there, sort of, you know, really black sheep. Okay. So, and it is the black sheep of the seven churches, but the black sheep there um, had a very fine, fine wool and it was um, considered a luxury item when woven into clothing. And so this clothing would have been black, naturally. And black stuff's harder to dye than white stuff, so it would have stayed black. And when Jesus comes in and he says, hey, part of what you need to buy here, part of this great exchange, this great, uh, uh, this great interaction is this stuff that you've taken so much pride in, this stuff that has brought you such great wealth, it's not really what's gonna cover you when the time comes. What's gonna cover you are the garments of white that come from being glorified in me. And so again, he's pointing specifically, directly to what's going on in their lives. And lastly, by ISAV, this is weird, right? Except it's not because Laodicea also was famous for producing this pharmaceutical product that was an ointment for the eyes. This is just historically factual. There was some sort of powder or ointment that people would come uh, for tender eyelids and you would get this stuff. It was only manufactured in Laodicea. And so Jesus says, hey, these things that you're known for, you're gonna exchange them. These things that have brought you wealth, you're gonna to have to lay them down in order to obtain from me what's needed. And he says, I'm just gonna read it to you right here. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I believe that there is a spirit of Gnosticism within the church today. And it seeks to see the things of God without the help of God. It's not like the Gnosticism that's in the world. That one is a little bit easier to, to target and pinpoint and say, oh, we know what that is. But the Gnosticism within the church, there is a pursuit of knowledge that, um, that becomes the, the end instead of the means. And the tragic thing at the end of it is that we have allowed ourselves to believe the lie that we can see the things of God without the help of God. And I think that in these days, the Lord is going to prove that wrong. In fact, if you just kind of take a quick look around the landscape, he's already doing it. He's already doing it. It's like, it's like a big fat Ichabod over the doorways of places that have forsaken the intimacy and the, the anointing of the Lord in an effort to just know about him. And so I think of us in our pursuit to see him today and how even, even here, like, you know, we, we want to see the Lord and 
there's this wholehearted running after God. But unfortunately, there can also be this glorifying of what we see in the natural. I'm guilty of it. We, we say that we measure success by transformed lives. But unfortunately, usually transformation means that we have to see it. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't sometimes show it to us in supernatural ways. But I believe that the things that, of heaven that we need to see, we will only see when the Lord anoints our eyes to see it. And I hope that that's more of an encouragement than anything else, because when you're not seeing what you want to see, sometimes it's because the Lord is blinding you to it. I've watched God literally blind people to things where everybody else in the room sees something and somebody's like, huh? I don't see that. It's kind of like how he chooses not to see sin. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Once it's forgiven and it's covered under the blood, it's as far as the east is from the west and there's no record of it. Amen? So this ISAV, to be honest with you, I could have used some this week. Um, I, uh, I got stung by a bee in my eye right here. And my face was so jacked up that my facial recognition on my de devices reported them all stolen. <laughs> it was like, I, I was literally, I was trying to pull this eye open. I had to hold it open. It was swollen shut. It's still not quite right. But um, I'm thinking of how, how much we want to see God and how we need that pursuit sanctified. We need that pursuit bathed in the word instead of just our own desire to know him. Let's keep going here. We're going to wrap up. But verse 19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's the most encouraging word in the whole letter. Those whom I love, I reprove. And I'm going to sum something up right here. And I hope you can get this. If you've trained yourself to run from, avoid, or deny discipline, say that again. If you've trained yourself to run from, avoid, or deny di discipline, it is likely that you are running from, avoiding, and denying the love of God in your life. And by the way, if you've trained yourself to run from, avoid, or deny discipline, that's like part of the human condition. I think that every one of us, there's something, there's a, there's a, a flesh nature, there's a human nature that wants to defend ourselves. No matter how godly we are, we want to rise up and defend, especially when we know something's good. I've watched Christians, spirit-filled Christians, totally lose it over defending their political positions. And it's entertaining. Um, unfortunately, I wish that it wasn't, it was like one of those painful things that you just can't stop looking at. That's why I don't have social media anymore. But those whom I love, I reprove. Those whom I love, I correct. Those whom I love. And that's again why we see a generation that's growing up and the total backwards lie, the lie that we see Jesus warning us of that, that in these days, uh, the good will be called evil and evil will be called good. We see parents choosing not to discipline, choosing not to correct their kids, calling it love. When the father lays it out, Perfectly clear. I don't care what translation of the Bible you have. I don't care how many pronouns and genders are taken out of it. This line will be the same. Those whom I love, I discipline. Those whom I love, I correct. It starts to shift our, our perspective in terms of conviction. I used to hate conviction. You know why? Because I was trained to run from, avoid, and deny correction and discipline. So when conviction came into my heart, I would just treat it the same as everything else. I'd defend myself against it. I'd tell God all the reasons why I was right. Because I was. 
And if we're not careful, we end up building calluses over places of our heart that should be sensitized to that little poke, that little thing. Well, I'm not going to listen to that. Something in me tells me I probably shouldn't do that, but look at all the reasons why I should. Look at all the good it's doing. Look at all the results I get. Those whom I love. If you're struggling with the love of the Lord, usually when we see people, when we meet people, when we're, when we're talking to somebody about Jesus and um, we know that they are not feeling the love of God, most oftentimes our instinct is to try to give them all the goody side of God's love. We want to show them, God loves you so much. We want to tell them about all the free gifts and the salvation and the gospel and everything else. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the Lord describes his love as discipline? And I wonder sometimes if we, if our engagement with folks who do not feel or know the love of God, if our engagement with them consisted of equal parts, yes, there's a cross, yes, there's a savior, yes, there's this gift of eternal life. However, it comes with a correctional nature that will shift us, that will change us, and we'll find ourselves not doing what we used to do when we stay sensitive to it. What if that was just built into it from the beginning? I wonder if our results would be any different. And lastly, he gets it here right down into the end, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jamal, you can come. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. We see that picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. You know that picture? It's like maybe it came out of the 70s or something, or maybe it's older than that. It's probably older than that, but... Uh, and it's Jesus, and there's like that door with all the sort of like vines and shrubbery around it, and, and Jesus is at the door knocking. There's something wrong about that picture. Jesus' mouth is closed. So if you have that picture, you're going to need to burn it. I'm just kidding. You don't need to. Just, just draw like a speech bubble coming out of his mouth. Not a thought bubble, a speech bubble. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my knock, my voice. The emphasis here is not on the knocking. It's on the hearing. It's on the voice of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, Okay, so there's a lot going on here, but I, I think that we've got to get over the knocking. Sometimes we just feel safe knowing that Jesus is pacing back and forth on the front porch, and that's good enough. He'll make sure nothing bad comes in. No. Whatever you open the door to comes in. So if you open the door to Jesus, he comes in and breaks bread with us and dines with us. But if we open the door to anything else, Jesus is not going to stop that from his place as a salesman on the front porch. If anybody hears the knocking, if anybody hears my voice, anybody hears my voice, some of us, we want Jesus to give his full sales pitch from the other side of a closed door. That's actually what probably the, the bulk of American Christianity is. We see him through the peephole. Okay, it's good. I've got eyes on him. He's out there. It's definitely him. It's the hair, it's the beard, it's the robe, the whole nine. It's either him or Roger Hart. <laughs> either one I'm okay with. Either one makes me feel safer. Okay. What's he saying? He's quoting scripture. Could still be Roger. 
that he's there. We love the proximity. We love just being right on the other side of the door and putting our hand up right up against his palm. We're so close. I'm so close to the Lord. I can, I can hear his heartbeat through the door. We want the fullness of his word. We want to hear his voice. We want the comforting sound of Jesus in our lives. But he says, if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, opens the door, I will come in. We put a lot of emphasis on hearing the Lord here. In fact, probably the first six or seven years before we were doing the value study, the soul study, everything else, there was like this push. We have to get back to hearing from the Lord. And I remember walking with people so frustrated at times. I don't hear him. Why don't I hear God? I haven't heard God. And, this, and it's like, I need a word from the Lord. And there was this, it was, seemed like this fever among the church to hear him, to hear him, to hear him, to hear him. And it started to catch on. And then conversation started to change. And it was like, oh, I think, I think this is the Lord's voice. I think this is God telling me something. I think I'm starting to like catch on here to what his voice really is. Hundreds of us have experienced yielding. We've experienced deliverance. We've experienced what it means to, to uh, be sensitive and resensitized, surrendered to whatever it is that the Lord's talking about. But I read this letter and I think, wait a minute, is it possible? Is it possible that we can go on hearing him encounter after encounter after encounter? from the other side of a closed door. He might even give the full sales pitch from the front porch. You might be one of those people and you can get everything. You can learn everything and never have touched him. Never have felt an embrace from the Lord. Never have really known his presence in the way that he wants to be known. Never sat down at the table and broken bread with him. But saints, that's what this call is to. Let's stand to our feet. At some point, these sermons start to get awkward because there's this old saying that you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. At some point, these sermons get weird because over and over and over every Sunday, we lead people to the presence of God, in worship, in the word, at the altar, in prayer, Tuesday nights, in prayer and in intercession. We lead people, we lead people, we lead people, we lead people, we lead people. But at the end of the day, I can't open your door. Jamal can't open your door. Pastor John can't open your door. That's you. That's you. That's the end of our road. We can walk you right down the stairs, down the hall, across the front room, and right up to the front door and say, You hear that voice? That's the Lord speaking. That's the still small voice. You feel that thing in your gut that's, that's appealing to a response? but we can never open your door. Not even Jesus kicks the door down. He waits. And saints, I believe that we're at this place where whatever we have positioned our lives around, whatever, where, wherever we have decided to build our lives, our families, our homes. I remember Stephen Furtick talking a while back about how, you know, People choose towns and neighborhoods and, and uh, uh, states even based on their jobs, based on school systems, based on the economy, based on politics. What if we positioned our entire lives around the Lord, around the source? What if we stayed so close? What if we built ourselves right on top of the springs to the point where we didn't have to worry about it being compromised anymore? 
Well, what's going to happen when our spiritual leader fails us? What happens when another big, epic, nationally known spiritual figure has a moral failure or a character flaws come out or these issues or that thing folds or this thing happens? What happens when somebody touches my aqueduct and my 9.3 miles of pipeline that I've worked so hard on to make sure that I can still stay alive at this distance from the source? Or what if we moved ourselves closer? So close that there's not even a door between us and the source. What if we started to live on every word that comes straight from the mouth of God? The water that comes straight from the river of life. That's the invitation. And before anybody sneaks out of here today, I want to say, is there anybody in this room? And you'd say, I know I need to be closer. I know I need to be closer. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, an arm's length that you've held between you and the Lord because you've trained yourself not to receive his love. You've trained yourself not to be disciplined or corrected because of abuse or some other issue in your past. This is a call to open the door, to come closer. Is there anybody in this room and you'd say, Zach, I know that I need to be closer than I've ever been. For so I know it. Everything around me, you don't even have to, you can turn on the news and you can tell, I need to be closer to Jesus than I've ever been. If that's you, I'm gonna invite you to step out of your seat and I want to pray with you at this altar. And I want to believe that God, the one, the Jesus that stands at the door, I want to believe that the Jesus that, that, uh, <laughs> that the Jesus that knocks and the Jesus that speaks today will be the Jesus that comes in and eats with you. Jesus, Jesus. Anybody else? Come on down to this altar this morning. Listen, that thing in us, that's an indicator. That's an indicator that the Lord is beckoning us for a reason. He's on your porch for a reason. It's your door he's knocking on for a reason because there is a call. This is not just a, hey, it's the welcome wagon. Welcome to the neighborhood. Take a couple more steps forward if you can, everybody. Just take a couple steps forward. Just need to get some people behind us. I love this because I see generals in the faith down at this altar. I see people who have, who have run huge ministries down at this altar this morning. I love that. Because you know what? When you've walked with the Lord 25 years, he's still knocking. It might not be your front door this time. It yeah. might be your bedroom door. Yes, sir. It might be your closet door where you're hiding that one little thing. The one thing that's left. He's still there. Lord, I hope you didn't notice that door. I hid it behind a bookcase on purpose. It's a trap door under a rug. And there's stuff in there that I don't want you to see. I'm knocking. And I'm not just knocking. I'm speaking. I'm speaking life into that dead place. I'm speaking truth over those lies. I'm speaking restoration over that brokenness. I'm speaking peace to the chaos that's behind that door. I'm speaking revelation to what's been kept in the dark for too long. I'm speaking sanctification over those places of compromise. But my voice doesn't matter unless this door opens up. See, things start to change when we sit down with him. Okay, Lord, let's eat in this place. You heard Pastor Kurt last week talk about going down to that house in Warwick and breaking bread with the Lord. He and his wife and the Lord in their car, breaking bread. At least I think it was in your car. Y'all didn't like go in the house, right? Okay, that'd have been weird. I mean, it would have been cool, but also probably jail worthy. But you broke bread with the Lord in that place, behind that door, in that closet, in that shut off area of your lives that the Lord wanted to get to so bad so that he could bring you to the next place. 
Pastor John and the prayer team, intercessory team, elders and pastors, I'm gonna ask you to step down here. Everybody at this altar, take another couple steps forward. Just get close, real close. We're gonna get used to close. We're gonna get used to intimate. Closer than comfortable, okay? Forsake comfort for close. If there was a door between you, that door's opening. If there's a threshold there, Jesus is coming across it. But you determine the area of your life where the Lord has been kept at arm's length. Ask our prayer team to come down, start to work through this crowd down here. And I, I feel like there's a word for somebody here and I'm gonna share it. And then we'll go into some worship here as we continue to pray. One of the incredible things that happened regarding that aqueduct, you see the water that was coming in was, was so mineral heavy that the calcium deposits um, began to be obstructions. And the Roman engineers actually built into the aqueduct system vents that could, they were covered by stones and they could be opened up because the buildup prevented the flow, the free flow. And I think that there may be some people in the room this morning and you feel like you not only are too far from the supply, but you're cut off from it. And I want you to know that what happens is the more distance that we put between us and the Lord, the more buildup gets in the way to over where over time, there's so much plaque in the arteries of the body that things begin to shut down that the life source ceases to flow into those outer extremities. This is a call to no longer be an outer extremity. There's a place for the fringe and it's not you. There's a place for people to come in and to say, hmm, I'm curious about this. 15 years ago, we started calling them seekers and we started trying to make our churches friendly to seekers. Jesus is friendly to seekers. Yeah, yes he is. But his call is to come past that outer place and into the inner courts, into the inner sanctuary and to find yourself thriving next to the source, on top of the source. So let's continue to pray. This is Pastor Zach and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys, God bless you and have the best day of your life.